Namaste to all of you. This is how we greet in our country, by joining two farms. This is one way to say that you and I, we are actually same. We have same kind of thoughts. We have same human needs. And basically, we live and search for the meaning in life in almost very similar manner by the very fact of being a human being. It's my great honor and definitely a new experience for me to come and meet so many wonderful people, especially from the city of New York. It's all very new to me. The place where I come from is actually very far away known as the country of Nepal. Many people, when I discuss, they ask me, where do you come from? Are you from Tibet? And I said, no, just near the, there is Nepal. That's in Nepal, is it in Peru? <laughs> Such a small place. We are a very rural community where I come from. So it's all very new experience for me. And uh, I was so happy, I must admit, they opened my eyes and sneaked peeked. Look at the people's faces. I was, I was so happy to see so wonderful, radiant, glowing faces. It's something very nice. And uh, I'm here, as I've been told, and of course, as I know, you expect to give teachings on Buddha's Dhamma, the insights of Buddha, but uh, before I start, I would like to mention that some time ago, one of my uncle, he gave me a book by some person named like Del Carnegie or something. <laughs> it said, how to influence people, <laughs> win their hearts. And you know, the thing is, I never read that book. <laughs> to me, it sounded like to influence people. It sounded very much like very disrespectful because in our country, we respect each other's thoughts. A very small country, but we have so many different, diverse, religious, spiritual, and community way of life. But we respect each other. We never tell what to do. So I thought this sounds very disrespectful. And up to now, I never read it. So I'm here not to win your heart, as Del Carnegie says, not to influence your thoughts, but to share the heart, to say my heart with you, whatever insight, whatever understanding I have collected from my culture, I'm here to say with you. And I must admit that I have problem with language. It's very new to me. English is not my native language. And uh, just like other things, I learned it, and I'm still in the process. So it's very kind of you to, to listen. And I hope I'll, if I make errors, you'll have patience and bear with me. <laughs> so first of all, I would like to share an experience that when I was young, growing into village of Nepal. I was born into a wonder family, wonderful family who were scholars. So my father 
my grandfather, and even his fathers. They had all wonderful books in our family, and I had good opportunity to read them all. And some of really wonderful works, and they kind of made me, they gave me one of the first impressions that I started trying to understand what is my culture, what is my civilization, what are the wonderful most people in my culture over the course of centuries, what have they been trying to do? And later on, when I went to study in college and high schools, of course, through the history, through the social classes, I came to know the world is much bigger than just Nepal. Of course, we live very close to India and other countries, and I came to learn, especially the work of Western teachers through the history classes, through the literature classes, I came to learn. I was very curious. From very childhood, I was very curious to things. And later on in my university, because they had a wonderful library, I had good access to read wonderful books. And I always tried to compare, I always tried to find out what is so different between West and the East, where I come from. It was a very strong contrast for me. At times I was very actually puzzled. And that contrast made me question all my tradition, all my religious, spiritual beliefs, way of life that I had inherited from my parents. It made me inquire, made me question, and try to see in the contrast of Western lifestyle. And try to, at the same time, I also try to see what are the people in the West doing over the course of centuries, how has it evolved? One thing that became very clear to me, I found that there is a certain difference, a certain difference like differences like two different dimensions can be seen there. I realized when I study the history, and we have this wonderful history through myths, through stories, through spiritual religious traditions, for over this course of thousands of years. And one, came, one thing became very clear to me is that all the people, almost majority of the people, the genius people that were born in our area, that were born in our Eastern world, all of them somehow were related with spirituality. They're always fascinated to dive into and find the mysteries of mind and how it relates to life. That thing, uh, it became very obvious and very clear to me. And when I tried to understand the Western civilization, Western world, it appeared to me that wonderful genius people who were born into the West, they always have tried to discover something that is like on the periphery of life, like on the outer aspect of life. Wonderful science, they've explored about matter, wonderful technologies, amazing buildings, roads, electricity, machines, all of that. And I was shocked, surprised, that none of our people have ever tried that. So I was thinking, which one is actually good? Is it better to just focus all the attention on the outer aspect and develop all these technologies? Or is it better to discover this spirituality, these ways of meditation and things? Later on, and it's very easy to become biased 
to develop prejudiced ideas that I'm Eastern, so whatever Eastern people have done is wonderful, is remarkable, and all the world should do that way. It was very easy to think that way. But I have seen over the, I have lived there the life and see that people, because for centuries they focused so much into the mind and meditation and spirituality that they never actually gave attention and focus on the physical development. That's one reason, though we talk of ultimate happiness, highest liberation, but at the same time, we have small problems like health problems, basic lifestyle, all the resources, and life without technology. So all the suffering, all the pain is there. And in the West, when I read about it, especially I was reading several documents about health, general health of the people here, way of life, and uh, crimes and everything. That's what was one way for me to understand the society as a whole. I came to learn that though the physical life is so much better here, but there seems to be a need, a great need of mental work too. It became very apparent to me that perhaps it would have been wonderful if people tried to combine these outer developments as well as with the inner development, this mental and the physical work. So I was, it is my own struggle that I had in my life, and I was trying to connect all these poles. And I was thinking it, would, it should be done like experiment to see how would it work. And uh, I must say that when I started studying the life of Buddha, it appeared to me that he was one of the most genius people, most genius person ever born in our place. And it is well acknowledged by several other traditions and cultures and when I tried to go to the roots of Buddha's teaching, I think what he says, what underlies all his philosophy, is that he, he was a very analytical person, very wonderful scientific approach he had. It's very funny, because I knew Buddha from very childhood. I had studied him. And when I went to university, I started reading books by Sigmund Freud. And for a few chapters, it looked like he's talking into the language of Buddha. <laughs> for a moment, I was confused. Is, it a, is he a Buddhist teacher? <laughs> so Buddha was something very similar. He always analyzes things. And one of the beautiful things that struck to my mind was he says there are two phenomena in the world. That was the Buddha's understanding. He says there is mind and matter. He was very good at separating them, and he says, there are two wonderful realities that we can see, that are tangible, that we can see, feel, and we experience every day in our life. These two dimensions, one is the mind and the other matter. And then secondly, he says, these two dimensions, the two, these two physical realities, and mental realities, they influence each other. They have a wonderful interrelationship. So the mind influences the matter, and the matter influences mind. It sounds very much like somebody's talking physics or something. So I was really stunned and surprised that this is a person talking who was born 2,500 years ago. He must have been a genius to discover such a wonderful way. And he says, one way to understand how this works is, he says that, for example, our mind. And we have all experienced our mind. That's why we try and meditate, to calm it down, to make it happy. So he says, for example, if mind, someday we are very angry, something goes wrong in the workplace or something happens or we're driving on the road and somebody's honking at the back, 
as I learned. In my country, everybody not honks all the time. So I did not know honking is a big problem. <laughs> and here I learned the first lesson is don't honk on the road, otherwise there is $350 penalty I saw on the road. And I said, I must take a picture of this to my country. <laughs> it does not exist. They think it's built right in the car to honk, that means honk. That's the understanding of our people. So, for example, if something goes wrong anywhere and we become angry, the mind becomes angry, the mental emotions become angry, immediately, if we are sensitive and we'll realize that mental state has a direct effect on the body. Our breathing becomes very warm and hot, we start perspiring. And if there are some medical people, they can see the heartbeat is rising, all these problems are coming. That was one way. But Buddha says, if we go deeper, if we analyze, that one, not only mind, influences the body. That has been told several times, this story has been told. But also the body influences mind. So I learned that uh, there are dream works, dream analysis, and they said if somebody is sleeping and somebody goes and puts a, a bottle of warm water on their feet, it's very likely that they will see some dreams where they're bathing with warm water or something hot or they're hot in there. So if body has certain experiences, the material itself, it influences back to the mind. This is a wonderful basic understanding of Buddha. And I would say, based on these wonderful experiences, all his philosophy is based on it. And I would say, if we give little thinking, if we try and analyze in our life, we can very much experience this. And I was really surprised to learn, because it was a big question for me. I grew up in a family where I was taught Dharma, perhaps even before I knew to talk. So it was. Like, and my, my grandmother, my father, everybody was so devoted to way of life, the Dharma, believing in spiritual ideas and things, that they did not even bother to question. And even when I, needed, I tried to ask questions, you know, they said, do you need to question this? It's, it's, this is the way we are born. This is the Hindu tradition. This is our Dharma. So when I started studying, one of the biggest things, you know, and it really took away all my faith on religion, was I learned that most of the time people are happy or sometimes stressed or angry. It's because they have certain chemicals in their mind. Certain glands, they produce certain chemicals and they become very happy. And you know, it was such a disillusion to me. And I said, well, then there is really nothing we can do. It's all about chemicals. If the glands produce certain chemicals, then we are happy. But if they don't, it, it has nothing to do with the spirituality, nothing else. But the truth is not only that. I learned that there is also the other way around. If our emotions, if our mind that we can manage, we have happy thoughts, it's very much possible that they produce these chemicals. It's not only the chemicals produce our emotions and thoughts, it's actually we also can influence back. And it has been very much proven nowadays. I was just reading an article some days ago on oxytocin. They call it the chemical of love. And they say if somebody is feeling happy and relaxed, the brain produces oxytocin. It's like, this is such a wonderful, like, brain is such a wonderful mechanism. Keeps us addicted, produces these chemicals. And I was really surprised, how does that work? And they said that it's very much possible that if some person is sitting there and we give him a dose of oxytocin, he starts being happy. It's like, wow, it's all about addiction. 
And then when I went deeper, I learned that even these emotions, when somebody makes us happy or we start thinking, even we are very sad, we try and forget the sadness and start thinking about something that, is, that makes us happy, they have monitored that such chemicals start appearing in the brain. So this is where the Buddha's understanding comes very handy, that we all have this capacity to influence back our experiences and try and change them that in a way that they will be suitable to us. But of course, we also have to get rid of an idea, the so-called idea, I call it Del Carnegie idea, though I know very little about this person. <laughs> Just from reading the, the topic of the book, it's something like influence and change our others. We have to get rid of this idea that we cannot totally change the life. Life is not totally under our control. But life itself is a wonderful phenomenon that changes over the course of time. And whenever these changes are occurring, we have a level of contribution to make. We can start making slight contributions each time is changing, each time is evolving, we can start putting something else, changing it slowly and slowly and slowly, and over the time. We can progress, it's possible, very much possible, that we can design our mind and our physical reality in a way that is conducive to our happiness. I think this comes from Buddha's understanding. And also, as I told you, there was a time in my life when I was struggling very hard to try and understand all of that because I studied so much books. In the beginning, I used to think this is very nice. When I read books, my parents become very happy. When I'm reading Bhagavad Gita, at the age of four, they became very happy. Wonderful work you are doing. They did not know they are training me into a way that will bring troubles to me. Because books are very much like eating something. They go into and they change the thoughts. And uh, when I started, when I was reading Bhagavad Gita, it's a wonderful book. Nobody has done any harm out of Bhagavad Gita, that's a good thing. But I continued reading several books, and I read over the course of years, especially when I went to university, all these powerful books that really shook me from my foundation, that, that really made me think and question everything once again. And there were books on social, socialism and all of that thing, and they said religion is actually poison that has killed the society. And it came very close, very, from very close sources of our community. I was like shocked. When I tried to analyze, is it really that way? From, some, from that point of view, it did appear that way. And from other points I learned, they say it's just a culture of belief that evolves and people need these because they're afraid of natural world and they're afraid of this and that disaster, they create religion, they create belief, all of that. I really had to go through. Is it really all just an emotional tool or is it really the something that humanity does not want to lose that is so precious to the humanity? I really had to question a lot. I say I gave one of the hardest time to my teacher. As a wonderful Buddhist teacher, she was a wonderful nun. She actually is one of the topmost teaching nuns in Nepal, also a meditation teacher. And when I started, I was very young. But I sort of made an agreement with her. I said, I will respect you. It's OK. That's my way. But please allow me this freedom that until I am really satisfied with all the questions that come in my mind, I will keep asking you. And she did not know. She thought, oh, what a wonderful student. And she said, yes. It brought big trouble to her. I questioned everything. I questioned the beliefs in gods, 
in demons, big trouble. And I said, unless you prove me that there is something else in life, why do I need this religion for? Why can't I become a socialist? Just tell me, and I would say that I'm not fighting with her, I'm really fighting with these problems, these thoughts that are coming in my mind. There was really no answers he could give me. And I had to go deeper to try and understand what is behind all of this mess. And uh, I was reading all about, because in our culture, what we call religion is not for salvation. This is a misunderstanding seems to come, that people think religion is a way out from this world. In our culture, it's never there. Religion is a path of growth. They say you grow and you touch the highest core of humanity. That's the religion, they say. So it's actually a path of growth, of a personal development, I would say. And uh, when I tried to study all of that very deeply, I also wanted to see at the same time, is there any thought like this going on in the Western world? Because these people have been so scientific, such a wonderful, bright, clear approaches there to understand the phenomenon of life. And they're living the same life. They're also human beings. So what, is, what are they trying to see? Is there anything going on like this to investigate this aspect of life in the West? And I come to learn a long time ago that there is something called IQ, intelligent quotient, that people can be happy and smart and successful if their IQ level is very high. And I was like, wow, probably this dharma thing is maybe in the beginning it was also IQ. They just did not know how to call it in English or something. I tried to understand. I wanted to read much more on it. And I thought maybe if people's IQ develops really well, they will be happy and all these problems will be gone. And they will, it was wonderful to know. And unfortunately, our country, when I was reading, there was no internet. Still, we have access to internet, but it's not really like what is here. Even to open one teeny tiny email, we have to wait at least 20 minutes. And we have to pay in our country per 100 kilobyte, there is a price. So that's the way internet works there. So I did not know. I couldn't tap. I was shocked when I saw something like Google or Wikipedia. <laughs> Everything is right there. You don't need to go anywhere if you want to know. Wish I had that in my days when I was searching for all that. I came to learn. I was searching more to read on IQ. There was not much available. Very luckily, my university had good library, and I went to National Library of our capital town, Kathmandu, I studied there for a few years started searching. Somewhere I heard from here and the other sources that there isn't, people are slowly beginning to talk about, some scientists even, they're beginning to talk about that perhaps there is not only IQ, there is a little more into the mind. A little, little more is there that defines the mind. And uh, they define, as, as I know of, as I think I, heard, I read and heard from, that IQ is just one part, that's the logic to evaluate things, to, to compare. And they thought maybe there is a little more. And uh, some time ago when I was trying to research on it, when I first came to in a good internet places, then there are so many theories. Some say there are six, I, six cues or other cues. But one of the good sources where actually I learned about this idea some time ago was people are proposing, some people with good understanding on the, some psychologists, they sit together and it's very, something nice about the scientists is, you know, they don't say it's concrete, it's real. They say it looks very viable. Is this a proposal? They're just proposing that this is probably a way to start thinking. 
And uh, they suggested that there's probably four cues. The IQ, intelligent quotient. Second is EQ, emotional quotient. I was like, way, way to go. This is something really nice. This gives me a little more. It was first time they're acknowledging the emotional quality is something good. Oh, now all the artisans, all the people who, who get mad at all the scientific world and they run away, they rebel and become musicians, become artisans. Now they don't have to run away. They can still be emotional. There is a place for emotions too. I was so happy to learn that. And now, that's why when my dear my mother, she came in my life, she asked, what, do you, what would you like to read? And I said, bring me any books that are on emotional intelligence. I want to see what they are talking about it. And I learned, and they, they said there are others, PQ, passion quotient, the energy of passion, how we become aware of that. And some are proposing, it was for a big surprise to me, they said even there is a spiritual quotient, SQ, a capacity to go into our own thoughts and see how they're influencing. There might be little more cues because mind is very mysterious. But it really gave me a good contrast, good way to try and understand Buddhist teaching. And to my great surprise, actually, Buddha teaches that every one of us, we are Buddha seed, he calls the Buddha nature. Very much like a tiny seed, just like a plant that we grow in life. We grow through experiences. We, we grow through going through difficult, happy, somewhat maybe in the middle, this kind of phases in life. And this becomes the process we evolve. And he says, each, uh, each of us, we have tremendous power within us, tremendous qualities that are, that are inherited in our own being. The way we are designed, the way our senses are there. <clears throat> he said, we are capable of immense things, but we just have to develop them. And then when I was thinking like this, one thing I remembered from my college days is I was studying physics and biology. Nowadays when I think, and I said, what was I thinking then? <laughs> but it was very interesting for me. I was on the move to, to become scientist, probably in opposition to all the beliefs and dogmas that I, I grew up with. So I was reading these books in science as part of my college program. And I have an elder brother. He's actually a civil engineer. He was very kind to me. And he knew my taste of curiosity to read. So he bought for me, because in our country, we don't have wonderful books. We are very tiny and very theoretical and very short books. We just have to memorize them and write lessons. So he said, I know you will not be satisfied with this much. So he actually bought me a cheaper editions of Cambridge books, almost the same label on science. So when I'm reading chapters on light, excuse me. You know, we Buddhist monks, we don't drink. So we get drunk on water. <laughs> so that's why whenever we reach a monastery, they always bring a big jar of water. And uh, so my brother used to bring me these wonderful books. And when I'm reading, my teacher is teaching a chapter on light. I'd go home and start reading the Cambridge chapters on light. 
And to my great delight, you know, they did not talk in one page. They had several pages and explaining everything. It was wonderful. Unfortunately, I knew a little bit English, so I could read. There was one place while I was reading about light and sound. The wonderful scientist, the writer of the book, what he had done was prepared a little chart. And he wrote the levels of vibrations, alpha, beta, gamma, all these different levels. And he put together the light range, the sound, and everything. And you know, to my great surprise, he has put the bars indicating this is human range, animal range. I was like shocked to see, because the graph appeared this big, and the human aspect was this much. The reality is so bigger, and humans, we participate only this. And I thought, even the sound, that means there are sounds that we cannot hear. Maybe something is going on about us, somebody's conspiring against us, we can't hear. So humans really can hear very little. And if it goes a little more, we cannot know. Same thing about the light, we cannot see. I was like shocked. This is what Buddha calls the limitations. And uh, when I read deeper, became very apparent, Buddha says that we have these inherent, inherent qualities inside us. If we develop all of them over the period of time, whenever these qualities develop, we'll become the Buddha. And the Buddha means, means a person who is never poor. And this is something funny, a funny definition of Buddha, because he never even had money to buy a ticket. So good that in those countries that we did not have trains at that time. He would have really big time to get on the train because he never carried money. Such a person, and still they call him that he's the richest person because he has so much to give. He feels so self-content because all his resources have developed so much. And uh, in contrast to all this emotional uh, intelligent quotient, emotional quotient, all of that, what I saw, Buddha says that there is a path, there is a way to become like this. There is a way to develop. And among those, he suggests a very powerful teaching common to all traditions of Buddhism, as they say. He says there are 10 qualities of perfections, 10 parameters. In his old language, he says parameters. And parameters is a wonderful word. They say, this is a mitra, means friends. Para means the friends who will help you to go along and grow and reach the, like, on the other shore. Is a wonderful, wonderful word. Means that these qualities will become our friend who will help us to grow from this known world, reach to the unknown that is within us. And these wonderful 10 qualities, when I try to analyze them, you know, first quality is there. It's called metta, loving kindness. And uh, for me, that's the way I like to be. But when I try to see from the socialist perspective, and I say, that's not good. Because when we become compassionate, we can't be aggressive. And we'll start distributing our resources, whatever we have, we'll become poor. This does not help us. But I was so happy to see even the scientist mentioning that unless be, you become emotionally sensitive, you become careful about people's emotions, that you understand your own emotion and you know a way to relate with others' emotions. This quality is the intelligence that will help you. Now, a person named Daniel Goldman, he wrote several books on it. I propose that this is a tremendous quality. Eight, something nice comes in the Western societies. Everything should be functional. It should work in the office. And he says these are qualities every CEOs, all the people in leading position, they need. Otherwise, this, is, this strengthens their bonding with the people. And I'm so glad to see Buddha says the same quality, metta, will help you grow. 
does not grow your business or something, it will help you to grow. So this is the quality of meta he emphasizes. Second, quality of patience. I was like, now great, we need this quality. We already tried that our situations in our country, you know, for example, I can give you our, our parliament member have been working for over two years, almost three years now, to write constitution of Nepal. And originally they asked only one year is sufficient. And they got the date, and they wait till the year is end, and they have done nothing, so they say, well, please have some patience. They extend one more year. So in such environment we live, we always practice our patience. I said, no, well, great, even Buddha teaches us practice patience. Why is it so necessary? It somewhere fits into these qualities. Now scientists are saying that if we just have patience, quality of tolerance, and we bear our physical discomfort, we get sick or something, and we don't worry about it. We don't become annoyed about it. We say, okay, this is my reality, I'm sick, let me see it. Have patience. That itself will at least not aggravate the problem more. It will not cause more tension. It will let it be there, calm, balanced. It will become easier for all the medicines, all the nourishing environment to work with it to heal quickly. So qualities of patience. Similarly, qualities of donation, dana. Qualities of let go. From outer reality, and especially in our country, sometimes when even monks, it's very difficult to understand because what he's teaching is super science of mind. And sometimes when it becomes involved with the culture, even some monks, we forget. We think it's only culture. So they teach, dana means you donate money to the temple. You see a monk, you donate him. But what it really means, dana is, of course there is a way to practice because money is what we grasp onto. That's not us, but it's the fear, it's the way society is structured that if we have that thing, then we will be able to work. We grasp onto it. What Buddha means at this core practice is, you start with this money, whatever physical things you have, start sharing, but at the end, your goal is to practice detachment, to let go things. And though we want or may not want, we will have to let go several things in life. We may not always be young, dynamic, and flying. We may grow old. We have to let go, whatever goes. I never wanted to grow up. <laughs> I wanted to be a young child, free from all the duties, responsibilities. And I grew up, I couldn't help. But I have to let go. And I see people, many people, they don't let go. They keep hiding their desires to be child. And when they become big, they get married and they can't be child anymore. Sometimes they sing in the bathrooms, I have heard. But they keep hiding. When they become 60 year old, then they become child again. They don't even let go of the childhood, though it wants to go. So we have to practice this quality of let go. And this is called the quality of dana. So these 10 qualities is propounders, they are nothing, actually a way to help grow. And if we go to the Buddha's words, he says these 10 paramitas, all the beings in this universe, animals are not different in his eyes. He must have had wonderful eyes to say that animals and humans are not different. If he would have been there these days, even us, his disciples would take him to the hospital and get an eye checkup. But he used to say to me, animals and people, they are not different. They are same inherent seed in them, the seed of consciousness. And these 10 perfections, they are the path to grow this light of, this, this light of consciousness, this little tiny seed of consciousness to help it to grow, to evolve. And once these qualities, we fulfill these qualities, we develop these 10 qualities in us to the highest level, 
will become enlightened being. What does it really mean, enlightened being? Hard to say until we become enlightened, but there can be some indications. It will start helping. We don't have to wait till we, all these 10 qualities they become perfect. Because one of the chantings we monks do every day in our monasteries, and we have been doing for thousands of years, and it's instructions from the old teachers, you, should, you can forget any teaching, but these, te these chantings you should practice. And I used to wonder, what are they? Is it I, there were different ideas. When I tried to see, you know, one of these ch chantings are the qualities of Buddha, the qualities of Dhamma, qualities of Sangha. So he says, these qualities of path. And one of the quality of his teaching is, he says, that it will become, it will bear fruit immediately. It will be immediately result-oriented. As soon as you practice, it will give you the result right away. It's so tangible. So he says, these 10 qualities, you don't have to wait that, okay, I will develop them, and when I die, my consciousness will move on to a higher level. It's nothing doing like that. He says, as soon as you start developing these wonderful qualities in you, you de develop your emotional, psychological, and all these wonderful ways, you'll start experiencing peace, happiness, and more important, meaning in life. There are several funny incidences I had in my life that really strengthened my belief, gave me faith. Not belief, but more like faith, was that Buddha says one of the qualities, for example, when you become enlightened, is the power of memory. You can forget all about what you don't want to, but you will remember what you really want to. How wonderful is that? And when I was in high schools, one day it occurred to me, because all the students in Nepal, because the education system is so that we have to memorize a lot all the time. We have to memorize physics, mathematics, we have to really remember everything right here. And students always complain that they don't have memory power. And they go to temples and they make offerings to the God Give me some memory power so that I can remember. And one day, a few friends of mine, they were really complaining with me. We don't have memory power. We can't remember a thing. That's my big problem. And I started thinking. Because this friend, certain friend of mine, he used to watch a lot of television because his family had a TV. I grew up into a family where TV was uh, forbidden, actually. Brahmin's family, so my father said no to television. <coughs> Sometimes I missed. When I grew up, I thought, hmm. <laughs> so he used to come to me, and all the time he talks about this television show or this movie or this certain actor whom I have seen on the posters and here and there, but I have never really seen, in those days, never had seen his movies or anything. didn't know much about them, and he tells me all about them. You know, this actor, he started acting in this age. He had children, and he such wonder, he likes these. These are hobbies. And, I said, and one day it really occurred to me. He was just complaining. He can't remember a thing. And I said, <laughs> Have you ever thought and that you know so much about your actor and you know nothing about book? Those must take up memory. And in those days, I used to read about neurons and things. And I said, all this space in your mind, because it's full with these actors. <laughs> Education cannot make in. <laughs> and went back home and started thinking myself. I never had thought that way. And I realized how much information we remember. If we have watched something, we remember in visual way. We remember the color, the sound, and everything. It's right there. And eight, we see we can't remember a thing that we need to. 
perhaps somewhere, it's not like that we don't have capacity. We have tremendous capacity. We just don't know how to operate, how to manage it. And we can't, we really can't, unless we grow up, because those capacities are higher. These are, or let's say, more deeper into the mind. And until we reach there, we can't. It's like if we put a light switch over there, we cannot regulate from here all the time. Either we'll need a tool to do it, and the tool may not be available all the time. So only way is to grow. This will work. And also, when I was visiting a place in Singapore almost three years ago, I saw they have a beautiful aquarium. You can go into a tunnel, and you can see sharks, sharks and other fishes swimming on the top. I was just shocked. My mother was there. We were participating in a teaching program. And so we just went to visit there. It's called uh, Ocean World. And the ocean, to us, is a great mystery. Because we are born in the country of Himalayas. We are a landlocked country. We have never seen ocean in our life. So ocean is something wonderful for me. I really want to see unlimited space of water. It's something wonderful. So she took me there, and I was looking at these sharks and scary things. Suddenly, one fish comes there. It's from, it lives in the deepest layer of the oceans, as he told me. And it had eyed, but I was informed. I was told that this fish cannot see. Because it has been living in such a deep water, there is no light. No light reaches. So the, the senses of the eyes don't work. And I remember a teaching from Buddha who says, if you don't practice, you lose that quality in you. And then I remembered, it's very funny how the mind really sometimes starts working, you know, it starts helping, just like a computer. Sometimes it starts very working very well, and sometimes it gets frozen. So that time my computer started really working. And I remembered the whole incident when I was fighting with my teacher. Back into the monastery, she was telling me that one time Buddha went to a place and he gave a teaching, and 10,000 people were sitting there. At the end, all of them, they became enlightened. And I said, well, I don't question about that. That's another stage. I would question about how can 10,000 people just by listening become enlightened. But first me, there is first question, tell me, how can one single man talk without microphone? Because up until 10 years ago, we did not have electricity, no microphone, nothing, no electricity. How can 10,000 people listen? This is my question. I don't question the people can become enlightened. <laughs> Buddha says they're all Buddhas already. They can tell me about this. I said, you are a strange student. <laughs> I said, no, this will really puzzle me. Even if I try, out of respect, I try not to question it. They will come and puzzle me later. What kind of a student will I be if I always have doubts about things? And she could not answer me. She just laughed and said, well, this is the story I have heard. And I could not think. Later on, because when I grew up, I started, I was asked to help a very well-known Tibetan teacher, very old. He passed away two years ago. He was actually also one of the root teachers of His Holiness Dalai Lama. His name is, uh, His Eminence Chogit Rinpoche. Very old, very old, wonderful master. And I have been doing these social projects outside. When I was young, I call it sometimes my curse, because I had no free time. I started working and involved, and we established some schools and things. So I was very busy, and it worked. And I was using also the Buddha's insight into the school, how they can help children. How can they help into developing concentration? For example, we have done several courses on meditation of breathing awareness, and that has shown a direct influence over the students that their power to concentrate and natural calmness, they're more, more relaxed in the class. 
without use of any, any means of discipline or anything. So he had heard about it, and he asked me to come over, meet him, and he proposed that he has a lot of group of students in the monastery and asked me to organize some educational program for them. And they wanted to pay me. And I was a very egoistic person in those days. I said, once you pay, that, then you own me. And uh, my basic principle is I never work for money. That was the one agreement. I will never take salary in my life. Because my father was a wonderful social worker, and he lived that way. And I said, it's some sort of competition you know, comes. And I said, I will do much better than you. <laughs> it was not out of ego, but it was out of love, that I will take this, inherit this tradition, I will do it in a much nice way, so that even I delight you. This is in the culture we are born. We are there to delight our parents, to do even much better than them. And this delight means we don't promise that we'll rise on the highest building or own this biggest land or something. We say we'll be good people helping others. That's at least in our families. So I started helping this teacher, and then I asked, put a condition, okay, they wanted to pay me, so I said, I don't pay, but there can be one pay, that you give me unlimited access to your old teacher, that I can reach to him anytime I want, I can ask questions, I can study with him, and they asked the, the old lama, and he was so happy. He said, I like this, this young, young person, young monk. So I said, oh, wonderful. And I used to go and talk, sometime with the translators, because his uh, Nepali was not good, and he started asking about his life. And he said, when he was young, living in Tibet, in his own life, he used to give teaching every year, because he lives in retreat most of the time, only teaches once a year. Those times, three to 4,000 people would come to his monastery, not long time ago, maybe 30 years ago in his life. They would come, and all of them, they would pay so attention and listen to it really wonderfully. And I'm like, wait a minute. Just a few years ago, I had a struggle with my teacher. Were they really listening or just pretending to listen? And he said, no, they really listened. And I said, explain me a little more. And he said, the, there is a cultural belief in peoples of Tibet. If you go to listen to Dharma story, Dharma teaching, and if you don't pay attention, you start snoozing away, you'll be born as a reptile, especially, <laughs> especially a snake, and that a big snake, a boa constrictor or something really big. Just imagine being born as a big snake up into the, the Tibetan plateaus where there are no forests, no animals. What will you eat? You will suffer your life. So nobody actually takes excuse to snooze. When it comes, they awaken. And they say, if you can't listen very well, if you don't pay attention and the teacher is just blabbering, blabbering, that will, your mind will become psychological problem. Like you'll have psychological problems. Because he's talking and you're not listening, you don't understand, you'll have lots of confusion in your mind. So pay attention now. And all of the people, they don't even sneeze. They try and stop it to pay attention. And he said it really worked. And I said, slowly people are losing concentration. He taught me. People used to be concentrated in those days. And now people are losing concentration. If I give teaching here, 200, 300 people come. He was telling in his monastery, they can't listen to me. And then we have to put these microphones and things, and people are losing concentration. I was like, just connected the dot with the fish living in the water and losing its eyesight because there is no light ever, never exercises. And then I remembered the words of Buddha. He says, these mental faculties, if you exercise, it's possible they will grow. We are our own creators. So if, if we exercise our qualities of concentration, our qualities to pay attention, all these wonderful human qualities, we rely on it, they will grow. And I'm sure that I, uh, I don't have to try and prove this. You already know this from your life. For example, when I was reading about yoga, first, yoga is you know when you connect to the God, it's a spiritual path. 
up until I really grew up, I did not know yoga means physical yoga too, just poses and things. And I said, I asked, what is the one Westerner who came to Lumbini? And he said, I have been a yoga teacher for several years. And I said, okay, what is the biggest challenge all these yoga practitioners face in your place, in your culture? And I says, the biggest challenge they, can, they face is they can't touch their toes. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> for us, the biggest problem is that if you cannot have a vision of reality, that's the biggest problem. Or you at least cannot have faith to try it. That's the biggest problem. I was thinking something like that. I was expecting actually to tell him like that. Then something I could relate. And he says suddenly they can't touch their toes. And I was like, what? <laughs> they say people don't exercise. So biggest problem is they can't touch their toes and they, they give up. And I said, then what do you do? And he says, no, we continue. And after some time, not only they can touch toe, their toes, they can do amazing poses, stretches. So if we practice, even our body starts adapting, changing. Oh, these mental things, they are much easier to change. Just when we are, let's say just for in case of honking, somebody honked us, and we are mad. We go home and little child waits there, our daughter or somebody, immediately we become happy. We forget all about it. It's so easy to change the mind. So if we exercise, we, we develop these wonderful qualities, human qualities, they will really help us a lot. This is Buddha's message. And in a way, he tells, we are our own architects. At least the architects of our own inner mind. Once we can do that, then this mind will have a direct influence to our physical life, the body, and maybe slowly also around the, the relationship the friendship, the community, the family, all of this. So I say this is an understanding of one of the greatest scientists ever born in our part of the world. We call him a scientist, though he never had a lab or something. We believe his science was with the mind and to explore how the mind has a direct influence over the matter. Just maybe one or two points more I would like to say. Then actually I'm here to listen more from you because it's very new for me, and first opportunity to actually face. There's nothing like this facing the camera. <laughs> when I was interviewed for the Buddha movie, I had no idea that it's going to reach to so many people. I was like, I'm just talking to the director, and he's asking such a good question, so I was so happy. But it's totally something really alive here. So I have a lot to learn, actually. So I'm hoping that we'll move on to question and answers. But there were just a small couple of things I would like to mention, but how is it possible? Uh, one thing I learned somewhere is that a uh, lot of people, especially scientists, have been trying to put effort to make research to understand the well-being of life. And a very scientific method. They have tried to say that there are several parts of well-being of our life, of our family relationship. If that is well and stable, then we'll relax. There is financial well-being. There is this and that. I heard it from here and there. And I was very curious to see how they are trying to show that, how they're relating with the life. And one of the nice experiences they said is, you know, in the life, that many people, they said, I remember, they said, a lot of people, especially people who go to work, most of the, these people, they die, they have heart strokes on Monday because they are so stressed about the work. And that was the problem they analyzed through scientific research in this. 
And I was so very curious, okay, what are the remedies they're thinking? Because I really want, and I want to understand the scientific approach. Sometimes they're very helpful. And they said there is really no direct help. There is no direct remedy. But something could be said is that once your workplace is interesting, it will help that. Unknowingly, it will have effect on it. And one of the things they suggested there, uh, I think, is that they say find at least one person in your work environment whom you can influence or whom you can be involved with, who shares almost the same ideas about your work, so you can relate with it. So be emotionally involved, that's what it meant. It will mean much more. It will have a direct influence over the life. And I see that if we know our emotions, if we know how to work and relate with these situations from within, they will help a lot. They will not only improve the work life for others, but they will improve us as total as well. And a uh, lot of, because especially in modern days, I see this is very funny contrast for me, actually, because in our country, when somebody comes to meet a monk or any spiritual meditator, you know, the questions they ask is they say, I want to understand the highest reality, the mystery of life. That's the question they will ask. It sounds very odd, but that's how they begin. And when I met Westerners in Lumbini who come for teachings, you know, the questions they ask is like, and sometimes they have studied Buddhism for many years. So when they come, they're not asking about Buddhism. They say, well, how do you teach about healing? And I said, what? He said, how did Buddha teach about healing? And I really wondered. Buddha never taught about healing. He was not a healer. And it really made me question. He says, this is what we need. We have lots of problems of health, sickness, stress, all these problems coming up in life. How does Buddha relate with that? And I thought, hmm, this is a good place. If Buddha's, Buddha's points are valid, he should be helpful even in this situation. Of course, he was not a healer. But coincidentally, all the methods he gave, he says these are wonderful, powerful medicine. They are for all kinds of pain and suffering in life. That's why we give a name to the Buddha called Vaisajya Guru the teacher, the master of medicine for life. It really helps. And uh, if these qualities, as I mentioned, just the 10 qualities, the qualities of loving kindness, qualities of dana, donation, letting things go, qualities of patience, qualities of concentration, there are several qualities. You can read about it in different books and things. And thanks to wonderful, wonderful Western teachers who have put so much effort in their life to bring up these teachings. They're right here. You don't have to go to the West. They're right here. You can reach them. If you read about these qualities, you'll find out these qualities also have one more inherent quality in them. Is not only they help you to grow, but once you grow, you know, you get out of the old covers. So they help in this process somehow you can heal yourself. It's possible. But it very much relies on you. I've seen it in my own life. When I was young, I used to be really puzzled, really puzzled, because we have lots of sadhus ascetics in our country. My own uncle has been a sadhu for ever since I know him. And I used to see this, my uncles and other uncles who live wonderful life. They have aunties to take care of them when they come from work, there is people to wash their clothes and thing, and if they miss their morning lunch, they used to send us, put in a little tiffin box and send it to the, their place where they're working. He should not miss his morning lunch. And then when he comes, there is a dinner waiting. When he comes, this and that. So many people to take care of him. If he has a little bit of fever, the doctor comes to help. And I knew my poor sadhu uncle. Sometime he would get only one meal a day. 
That's it. That too, they have to beg around, and sometimes some people, they say, you're just begging because you're lazy. People say these things in the West. It's not the old days where everything was so nice. And I see the life of so many of these kind of people. And eight, sometimes they get morning, they don't get evening meal. Sometimes there's a beg around here, and it's not very nutritious. It's very, there's such a poverty in there, you know, people just give rice or something, and they eat it. And they don't get sick as often as these people. And contrast to that, these wonderful people, I compared, I have experienced it in my own life. Normal people who have been living their life, they have all family and wonderful, as soon as they turn 50, 60, you know, they become like, they can't do much now. They have this and that health problems. And when those sadhus I tried to compare, I did a wonderful research for my own curiosity to try and see that. When they reach that age, they're, you know, they're, they look more happier. Maybe sometimes some they become eccentric, but health-wise they're wonderful. <laughs> they're very strong and well-going. And it really used to be wonder, what is thing? What is this that is influencing? If the science is right, 100% right, that they, they need iron, calcium, all of that, I'm sure they are not getting at least few of them. How are they keeping it strong? And I thought there is only one difference, probably is the thoughts. How they manage their thoughts. And I think, I, I'm not saying all of us become sadhus. Never doing that. Just for the health, it's a big risk to take, big thing to lose. They lose all their life and get that. But there is something, some insight in it that can help. I had one experience, a personal experience in my life. Is a, there was a wonderful man, he said he was from Poland, a very tall man. Somehow he found me in Lumbini. He was a visitor and he discovered me in Lumbini and he says, I'm here searching for you. And I said, who told you about me? And he says, I just found you. And you know, he, saw, he said something to me. He says, his problem is he can see ghosts. I was like taken aback, what? I've been trying to see them. <laughs> I was actually a ghost hunter, trying to find these things because I said if I can prove this, I can prove there is enlightenment for my own self. Then I have reasons to follow this path. Otherwise, why am I going to do all this? I don't like this stress. <laughs> I used to think those days, <laughs> and now I'm stuck with it. <laughs> but I enjoy, but I enjoy, <laughs> but I enjoy in, in it. So, I said, what? And he says, no, long time ago, few years ago, back into Europe, when he met some people who could do all these things and perceive ghosts. And he was so interested, so curious. And he said he tried deliberately, learned this technique and seen them. And he talked to me and he told how he saw. And he says, he says, now the problem is, and I said, then you're great. You're already a great person. You can inspire people. You can tell this because these are scary things and nobody knows. I said, no, that's the problem because I know now. He says that when he goes to sleep sometime, these ghosts, they follow him. He says he, he's being followed by them. And he said, I had sometime terrible attacks. He, he told me he had demons attacking him. And he says, I have heard these wonderful monks, sadhus and things. You have some kind of protective chants, some mantras or something. How you protect yourself? Because he read maybe somewhere in the books that we go to meditate in cemetery and all of that. I said, that's where ghosts live, many of them. How do you protect yourself? It's like, hmm. I really don't know at all. And he says, no, I feel that you can help me. Please help me. I was at, really at a loss. Here I am, a monk. Person comes from so far, he thinks I have the medicine I can give to him, and I have none. And I really wonder, do I, do I need to go and find other teachers to ask, give me some protective chance, I may meet a ghost someday. <laughs> I was really at loss. And I thought, well, I don't know much. But I saw that there was a fear in him. I thought the remedy of fear, Buddha says, is loving kindness, love. 
So I told him that there is this practice of metta that you can learn to cultivate. And I said, the fear is there, let it be there. When the ghosts come, try and meditate with love for them. Try and do that if you can. You can do it now. So I, asked, I prescribed him, you should go for a 10-day meditation course in our tradition, Vipassana tradition, learn that, then they will teach you how to do proper metta. Do it. Three months later, he wrote me. He went back to Europe, and he also he says at the end of, he did the course, very nice, and he wrote me that has stopped through several aspects. He says sometimes he sees them around where he's sleeping or something, and then they vanish. He said, it has really helped. I was like, great, oh, that worked, thanks. <laughs> so in many ways it works. All these um, different stress problems, neurological problems, they will all come in our life if we don't grow the way our consciousness is designed to grow, to evolve. We're here to sign, to, to evolve like trees, and we're here to bloom, bloom into beautiful flowers and spread our fragrance. And if we don't grow these qualities, then there will be several outbursts. They will look like something is going wrong here. Because these qualities, they want to grow. For example, everybody wants love. That's what I read. That was some beautiful, interesting discovery for me, that all these people who are fighting with their girlfriend, boyfriend, husbands, wife, even children, they want love from them. And they don't give. Sometimes they don't pay attention, and that's the big trouble. That's how the fight starts. And they don't know that they're also the source of love. It's such a magnetic resonance. If they generate this love, that's what they will attract from people. And I said, that's where it will really work. So these are the insights of Buddha. I'm very glad to say with you all. And there is, of course, a lot more, because this person practiced for several years, several years, and distributed these wonderful ideas. And I have had to spend several years to at least try and touch them. <laughs> so it, it's not possible to bring all of them in certain this is small talk, but at least we can share some insights. And uh, I'm more looking actually to listen from you now. So if you have any questions or anything, you may please ask. The other night you, you were talking about the incredible work that you started to do, sort of like a grassroots work. Could you say a little bit about some of the um, different projects that you have going right now? Um, yeah, that's nice. At least they will probably explain you that how even this practice, this living this life of Buddha's way, has helped me to do things wonderfully in my life too. And it has really enhanced my um, capacity, my productivity to do something really wonderful. And uh, it's just like my work, actually. I grew up into this wonderful family where my father had been a wonderful social worker. He's still, they set up clinic to distribute medicines and things, and they've been really doing wonderful work. And we were Brahmins, so all the village people, they would come to our family. If they have any problem, they come to our family to ask help from my father. And my father always did all those selflessly without any pay. And they always, he was very clear to teach us that this is our culture. From generations onward, we have been doing, and we never expect anything in return. 
This is the way to be. It's, it's a great fortune for us to be able to contribute, and should, we should always be careful not to make any wrong judgments, to listen to all the people, what we can do. And he used to bring a lot of medicines in our home. And all these village people, when they are sick or something, they come to my home to take medicines. And uh, in our culture, there's one more thing, that old people, they actually are on the lead of the family. When they grow old, they don't lead financial things, but we believe those people who manage finances, they are not the chief. Those people who just sit around and everything revolves around, them, they are the chief. So we call the old people the chief of the family. So my grandma would manage these things, relationship. And when my father is not there, actually, people will come to her to ask for medicines. She's a very old person, and she does not know to read and write. So sometimes she would give a person who is suffering from headache. To him, she gives a diarrhea medicine. <laughs> I said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> so she said, OK, you be my assistant. You start giving them now. And then later on, he came to me. Now, you go and talk to her this. That's my name, old name. So all the people started coming to me. And I used to give them medicines, advise them, and I said, how do you get sick all the time? And all of these things. And I would learn things in my school and try to incorporate. And that was a little taste I had of social work. It became so addictive. It's very nice, you know, when people smile at you. And as children, we always want to make people smile at us. That's something so nice. That was my taste of social work. And uh, when I grew up, I went to the school. And uh, I was given, when I was in grade 7, I was given a training from some environmental experts of our country on environmental issues. So out of that, I formed a nature club in my school, involved my principal and some other friends, and we would do plantations. And we would talk about pollution. We were talking about, when we were talking about noise pollution, I remember the expression of my, even my teachers, some of the teachers, what? Even the noise pollutes? Nobody knew in, those, in our place. And even when I heard, it was shocking for me. So I was teaching all this. We had a little nature club. We would plant trees and things. And I was going for bird watching and all of that, and a group of friends. And uh, once what happened is that four of our friends, they've been working for me almost a year and things. And then they said they won't be able to come to take classes next year in the next level. Because in that level, when we reach, we have to get registration from the government for a higher level, because we have to appear exams that are conducted by government, so we have to pay a huge registration fee in those days, and buy a new set of books, and their parents said, no, basically they can't afford, and now since they are a little grown up, they can go and work in India and send money home. Most of them, they did, and still they do nowadays. And I said, no, this is not fair. I know your parents can if they really want to, but that's what not really matters. What matters is that I know that we need education, not for now, also for future. And you can ask your parents, 10 years before, in our village, we had no electricity, no bank, nothing. And they were fine without knowing to read and write. They never had to. And now we have this big lineup at our bank banks. Everybody's running here and there. When I was running our school, which we later founded, I had to go to bank sometime. A few times I went there, I loved it and hated it at the same time. Because when I went there, there were so many people who knew me, and they all came running to me and said, please fill up my check. Uh, please tell me how this, that happens. They're so ignorant. They don't know how to write, read and write. They stamp all on the check. And there is always, bank has to appoint few people to fill up this for them. And eight, some people cheat. There is a lot of, so they don't trust. And when they saw me, oh, you are here. It took me three hours, you know, to, to just finish that. And I said, I don't want to go there. 
Because the first thing I really like, but that's where not I would like to end up, sitting in front of the bank and signing everybody check, <laughs> writing everybody check. But I learned, and I tell them, now your parents have this problem. They have to go to the bank, they have to pay electricity and things, and they're in big difficulty. And in those days, I, had this, I would collect the picture of ATM machines and things, because I used to go cut Kathmandu sometime, get magazines from my parents, and I would clip it. I said, you know what is this? This is the bank of the future, and it's coming to our place. I would try it off. Someday you will have to go to this bank and there will be no person. You just have to talk to the machine. How will you do that? And I'm so sure that it will talk only in English. At those days, even I did not know very well. <laughs> and tell your parents that you have to live your life 60 years in the future and your parents may not be more than 20, 30 years ago. And that, I think, came from my Brahminic, uh, the, being raised in a Brahmin family because we discuss all these matters about how life evolves and deaths and everything we discuss in our families. So I really started thinking that way. And I would say, then 60 years in future, your parents will not be there to help you, and your children will be looking back behind you, and they will expect you that you will solve all these problems and challenges. You need education for that. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we are convinced. We want to come to school. Who wants to go and work? But, and I said, okay, then just continue coming. We'll find textbooks, get it registered. And then one day, I had a very funny idea. I would say one of the crazy idea in my life, I always call it crazy idea, is that actually I went to my senior class, a grade before me, there were 60 children, students in that class, and I said, you are my senior. In our culture, to seniors we call brother or sister. We never address them by name, it's a humiliation, it's disrespect. So I said, you are my brother and sister in this school, and I'm younger, so if I have a younger brother who has a problem, he comes to the older one, that's our culture. So I explained them, for our friends, they will not be able to come they will really, uh, it will be really nice if we can use your old books. Because you've graduated from grade eight to nine, so you must have leftover books. Can we use them? And if you want to donate, please contact. I was so embarrassed. First time in my life ever I actually went. That was my first fundraising, I would say, or resource raising, whatever. And I went there, and I was so embarrassed because I asked something. And then I was shocked. By the end of the class, several of them, they came to our class almost 46 at that time. They said, tomorrow they will bring their books from home. And I said, no, we don't need that much. We just need four sets. And I said, no, 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 it's lying there in the home and nobody uses. We'll just give it to you. You know what to do with it. So they actually brought 44 set of them. They were really usable. So we formed a group and we raised the pencil marks and put new covers and organized. And I said, okay, four of the friends here. We did a list of many children's. So we presented these books and I said, see, this is Dharma helping. Now you have four set of books, that means you come to school. And uh, they started coming. And I thought, what to do with this? So many books left over. And I thought, maybe there are so many more who don't tell me their problems, who may not, may not know so well. So we put a little notice for everybody. If you want to use old books, they're for free, please take it. And we distribute it over the week. And later on, we started becoming popular. Our teacher, a principal, very egoistic, very scary person. He called me over in the in the office, and I realized, oh, I did not take his permission, did not even mention him. Now I'm in big trouble. But I went there, he was very nice. He said, I have heard about what you were doing here, and four of your friends. So he gave us a little scholarship by the government. It comes to have bright, bright assistance, and he was actually thinking for me. And I said, when we had conversation, he promised that four of your friends, if they promise to do well in studies, they don't have to pay fee. The school will pay for them. I was so happy, and it worked. So we formed a little group, and then it multiplied. So many people, now before they were working one hour a day sometime, and that too, I have to make them do it, convince them, and all of that. Now they try and come to me, and I said, let's do something nice. And really formed. 
And later on out of that, because I, and when we finished grade, grade 10, I had to uh, leave that school because there are no other higher level of education centers in the area and go to a Kathmandu town, capital, 300 kilometers away. My brother was studying there. And I could not take all of these friends. I had 10 to 12 of them who were really good, graduated with me from grade 10. And all they had left was go back and start working in the farm. So I tried to take my brother helped. Three of, three, sorry, three of them I took, others I couldn't. And all the time in Kathmandu, I used to think, what can we do with them? And there were several other incidences. Out of them, I trained these friends. I asked them, you will become a volunteer teacher for our society. And I learned that there are hundreds and hundreds of our ch children in our own villages, neighborhood villages, who don't ever get to go to school. I went to visit these schools of government. They're overcrowded, no enough teacher, and they can't take any more students. So, okay, we'll form this school for those children who are out of the community. And then I trained these people who are not teachers, but they have education, they have no job. I said, you become volunteer teacher for your own community, start a school for those children, and several ideas. And community really came forward and helped. We raised, I said, funniest fundraising. We raised bamboos and grass and all of those things and built classrooms. And we conducted there. I was thinking maybe only 60 students I would do and some friends. And before we had to like, I was very systematic. I learned from my father. And they had this survey they had done in every house. They exactly know how many people are in the house for health reasons. So I followed that system and now I would pick up these piles and go to their home. And I said, okay, I know how many children there are in your family. You have three daughters. Why are you not sending them to school? And he says, no, I don't have money and this and that. And I sometimes I recognize, oh, I know you. You go to work in my teacher's monastery there. I have seen you working in the gardens. And I know they pay you 150 rupees a day. And then suddenly the wives, because they don't, generally don't, don't come out of home in our culture, especially when they see a high-class family person coming, they don't come. And normally, too, they don't come. So they would shout from inside, you know, say, he drinks. And I said, ah, that's the problem. Every day when they finish the work, they drink wine. And it's not like drinking here. It's so civilized here, at least. There, they get drunk. Drinking means drunk. And there was so much money, so much money. I said, well, the problem is not that you don't have income, but you don't know how to manage. So I said, can you help us a little bit? We'll take care of your, your child's education. I would say, here is a deal. I was just like that. You will take care of all your child's education. You don't worry how much it's going to cost and this and that. You work a day, earn 150 rupees, give us 30 rupees. Out of that, we'll take care of your child's whole month of education. And then mothers would say, yes, yes, he has to agree to this. So we brought children from like that. So we used to make house visits. And I learned over the time that it was mostly girls who were not being to sent to school. <coughs> Because they think investing any money on girls' education is lost. You'll be married to a different family. So we started this school. It grew up. Now we have two schools and over 800 students. And we're also starting a small girls' school, especially for those girls who get married and they have to, live, uh, they have to raise family and things. That's growing. And I have also trained over 30 people, 30 young teachers. Into, and they become wonderful, effective teachers. And now they even get paid by this school up to 40% to 60% has been coming from the parents' contribution. We call it dana. It's not a fee. They donate. Others come from friends and things, and it has worked. It has evolved. And uh, I have heard several times when I was really frustrated, really afraid that I may have to shut down the school. And we started when there was a big conflict in our country, the Maoist war. But really, dharma practice, my own practice, really helped me to pull that project through. And I'm so glad that now it has evolved. And so many people are benefiting. 
And uh, over the time, I learned that I should not make them rely on me. So I design in a way that those things work on their own. I have people to carry on. And I think it's a good thing for me. I can retire. I can move on to something else. <laughs> but it's troublesome mind. Once you get addicted to doing something, you can't really stop it. So I'm thinking some more new projects. <laughs> so, I, I was curious about uh, mind and, and matter and the, the, the combination of the two. And so I was thinking about meditation and uh, I was, I had two questions. One, one is, do you believe that there is uh, one meditation that is better or more effective than another? And the second question is, um, if you if you believe that one meditation is more effective or better than another, um, besides the meditation tonight in in New York, um, where where was your best meditation, and why was it the best meditation? Um, Thank you. Uh, that's a very interesting and well practiced question. Looks like come from a person who has practiced for some time. Actually, there is no such thing that one meditation is better than the other. But I would say any meditation that helps us come closer to our mind and be able to establish a connection with them and find out what is really going on. And in that process, also to discover that where is there a little chance where I can make some change into my own mind, into my own thoughts, into my own inner problems. So if any meditation technique allows us to connect to our mind, that is beneficial. But we have to acknowledge the mind is the most mysterious thing. We actually never know. It has no form, no color, nothing. So people have had several challenges with the mind. One of the best tried method, and I would say it's a very common denominator of meditation in all different traditions is they establish there is some kind of connection of this phenomenon of mind, this consciousness, because up until some time ago, even the scientists, they used to believe the mind means the brain. Some may still believe, but I have heard that there have been some understanding, they say consciousness may not be just in the brain. It must be a bit, it's possible that it may be a bit bigger than that. So such a mysterious mind, they've discovered that especially the spiritual understanding that there is one common denominator that is common almost in all kind of meditation techniques. They say the closest link that we can have with the mind is somehow related with our breath. That our breath, in a way, has a direct link with the mind. We don't know how, but as soon as something happens in the mind, for example, we become sad, the breath becomes very happy, we start feeling suffocation. Or if we get angry or something, the breath becomes hot and warm and moves quickly. So they say the breath has in some way a connection with the mind. And if we calm down the breath, it becomes easier to calm down the mind itself. So that's why one reason the breath has been used in several techniques. Maybe in one way or the other way, it's packaged into techniques of meditation, but it's there. And 
So similarly, any meditation techniques that helps us to connect to our own mind, be able to feel our feelings and know how they're causing us difficulties and how they want to be, how to organize them, that would help. I would say that. And um, I would say, as, it, uh, as in the answer of the question, that what is the best meditation I had, as if I understand is what you mean to ask. I would say the best meditation that I ever had was the meditation that I did myself. When I went to the monasteries, my teacher would teach me meditation. Okay, you have to meditate. I tried. I went to the courses, tried. That was all I was trying, trying, trying. But that trying or something led me, you know, when I discovered that there is so much joy. And then I sit, then I sit and meditate. Those are the best moments. Those are the best meditation I ever had. It's not about technique or something. This is more about being able to present and do this meditation, do these practices, not because I have to show to be a good student or I have to show and I have a good spiritual practice, no, but for really my own self. That was the best meditation I ever had. And that's what I would say. Is that okay? Thank you. What counsel or advice would you have for someone who struggles to maintain the discipline of regular daily meditation? In other words, I believe in it deeply. I feel the benefits very clearly when I meditate, but the discipline of daily meditation I struggle with? Mm, that's a, another interesting question, but I have to say I can't help with that. If you want to eat ice cream and you, you say that, the problem is I can't walk to the store, then I really can't help with that. <laughs> if you do feel the meditation helps you. And then slowly and slowly, think it more. My advice is that consider more that how you if you meditate, it will help you even more. And you may wonder that I really can't find that one hour or half an hour of my life every morning or evening. But then we have to do evaluation. And many times I found in my life, in the beginner stages when I used to meditate, really, like at the very beginner's mind. And those times, I really had these struggles. And I realized that if I meditate one hour, it gives me such balance, such groundedness in my own mind that helps to improve the 10 hour of my day. My decisions are better, that I really can concentrate well, and I can, people can come and complain and things, and I can still smile at them. And that somehow helps to, to solve the problem. So if you see that one hour given to the meditation improves the, the or its productivity of your time, then probably that will give you a little more well, incentive to try and meditate a little more. But you have to do it yourself. There is really no clear-cut way. And uh, even when our teachers, they don't really tell us, they say, it's your problem. If you want to meditate, you have to find the time, you have to do it. Nobody else can help. So if you want to eat the ice cream, you have to walk to the store. Or learn to make the ice cream in home. So whatever you want. So you can either incorporate, incorporate the meditative awareness while you're working, while you're dealing with the people. Find some moments where you can connect with your own. See how I can involve my meditation in the daily life. Because we may be able to meditate one hour. Or maximum, some person can do two hours or three hours. But that is very limited amount of time. That's actually a smaller portion of the rest of the time that we have to live the life. So those moments when you meditate, there'll be excellent time. But still their influence will be lesser than 
into the 12, 14 hours of what we do in that time. So we have to find a way to incorporate these ideas, these, these lifestyle patterns into the daily life and see how that helps. I think that could be a better way. Even for monks, it becomes really difficult to, to be able to find regular time to sit every morning and evening. I have to acknowledge that. It's an insider's view. <laughs> I would say that. <laughs> How in your, because I think it's probably very current, how in your practice or what the Buddha might, might um, teach, were you able or are you in the process of knowing when to let go? Doing service is, is a, it's a wonderful thing and you almost, with it, it sounds as if it was just so natural coming from your your generations of people, but how in your practice have you been able to let go of coming here, for instance, and let go of what you've started and move on and kind of not cut the cord, but okay, I've started something, but I need to, to leave it. And you were talking about the addiction mind, and many of us do this with our work, our everyday habits. Um. That's wonderful, actually. I would say that it did not happen at once. It didn't just come like at once in my life. But slowly and slowly it evolved. And uh, one of the benefits I started getting from the Dharma practice, especially meditation itself, was when people would come and deal with me. Sometimes I have to go to meet the government officials and things. And just, just put it, putting in the context, in our uh, country, if you want to start a school, for example, you have to pay 50,000 rupees as a deposit to the government, a money that you cannot move. But if you want to start a small wine factory or something, you can only pay 500 rupees and get a license to do it. So that's it. And I said, if I have this 50,000 ever, I'm going to make classrooms, never going to give it to the government. That sort of, I was a little bit, I would say, turned or something, and I never had those money in the beginning. <laughs> but still, so I had to sometimes go and talk to these government people. Otherwise, they send police to slot it down, and they ask us to come to report in the police station. Those sort of things were happening. And I learned that sometimes I used to be a little bit, and anybody in that given situation, any normal human being would feel stressed and angry about these officers and things. And I realized that, when I would meet them, a tendency would come to my mind that I have to say some grumpy words, let them know I'm not happy. And then I used to think, hey, wait a minute, that's what's my meditation helping me. Probably he already knows I'm grumpy. He, can have, he has that little bit of intelligence. He already can see that I'm in trouble, so I'll be grumpy. So just I would respect that. And I would say that, well, Buddha says sometimes have patience, have tolerance, wait and see. I said, okay, all I can do is smile and say nice things and see. And the same thing I would do to the person, and we wouldn't be very productive. He would say, listen everything, he would listen everything, and he says, oh, let's see tomorrow. And I would think, well, I tried, it wasn't very productive. But the next day, he'd be in a really happy mood, you know, and he became so friendly somehow, unknowingly. And he would, start, he would start suggesting me, how can I find a solution to work with the system of government? And I realized, well, that really helped. 
So I started, I started trying to use as much as I could the meditation, the Dhamma practice, the insights of Buddha, how it can help into all the work. And I think because of that, all the activities, they multiplied a lot. And one, is, one benefit the Buddha gives is he not only teaches us into the nature of addiction, but also teaches us the process, the very process how addictions start. And this comes as a deeper practice of living a monastic life, is that we have to pay attention on how these difficulties, we are giving birth to these difficulties, we, how we are generating these difficult habits that one day will become burden to us. For example, just like coffee. Uh, that's one thing I learned when I came to West, was coffee. <laughs> my Dharma mother introduced to me, me to it. Before in my country, I, sometime I used to drink Nescafe. And when I got to drink real coffee, I started calling Nescafe Nescrappy. <laughs> but I learned, it became addiction. Second day I don't have it, I get headache. And I realized, well, at this one place I didn't pay attention. So nowadays I just say no to coffee. And my mother is surprised, like my dear mother, what are you doing? You don't want coffee anymore? And I said, no, nope, I'm happy with that. So in similar instances, Buddha teaches us also a way, that's the part of the meditative life, is to watch how these problems arise. Not only solve these problems in life, but also watch how these problems arrive and is it possible to block them. So I really was thinking a lot. And I also study the life of several teachers, several social workers, and I try and find how they live, their experiences. And I learned one thing that any social worker, any person, should be very careful is not to make oneself the center of ego. Especially while working in communities, very important. All, this, all the context puts us right into the spot where we have to hold everything together. That can give us the illusion sometimes that we are actually the main boss, or we are why the organization exists. That's the illusion. It's just the need of that time that we need to be there to make this happen. But that will change. Somebody else will come. And if we get addicted to that, if we start rejoicing and being happy, oh, and this and that, then we have to suffer either emotionally or we have to keep maintaining it. It becomes ego problem. I could really see that. So I don't want to do that. And who wants to carry the burden of this all the life? If this thing can work on its own, let it work. For example, like driving and um, just the other day I was reading in the paper and they showed a picture of a car and they said this, it will follow with the laser beams and it will drive itself. I was so happy and I said, they really need to make these inventions. People don't have to drive. So if car drives itself, why to drive? We can sit and relax and not get stressed. We can perhaps meditate all that time. <laughs> <laughs> so similarly, if we can use the idea of Dharma and still design these works, we make official so, we lead organizations, all of that. Of course, we have to be very alert, very creative, and be present there, and have to work hard to make this thing run. But when it's run, we can realize that we don't have to become ego of it, a part of it. It can run even without us. And uh, for, for my case, it has worked. Um, of course, it was also because of me, they say, my friends acknowledge, if you're not there, school would really not grow this much. Because Somehow they also, and I say, perhaps if my parents were not there, I would not be able to do this much. It's also their heritage that I receive is the repetition they have earned. And uh, if I go to villages, people donate actually, their own land. They say, I will donate to you because we trust on you. And it worked. 
But I realized I don't have to be a part of it. And it will work on its own. Two years ago, I stopped going to school altogether. Before, I used to take classes. Every day, I used to take from 10 to 4, I used to teach classes. That's why I learned in my life the most difficult job on the planet is to be a teacher. You have to talk and talk, and nobody wants to listen. <laughs> so I think in contrast to that, I turn to meditation, where you don't need to talk. You can meditate. Be silent. And I stopped going to classes altogether, going to the meetings. I come when sometimes I want to meet the children and tell them stories and things, or just see how it's going on. I go. And last this year, because every year we have parents' meeting, where we invite especially the mothers. In our community, females don't go anywhere. They just cook, clean the pot, cook and clean the pot every day. Morning, evening, that's what they do generally. So no, mothers have to come to participate in the school meetings. So it became a motherhood gathering. All of them, they come, parents also come, fathers also come, and we meet together and talk. And those are very important moments when I actually have to go and tell stories and talk and we present what we did in one year, and then we design all together. We sit together and design next year's program. And uh, it's all the basically mothers do it when we just facilitate now. I stopped going. Last this year, there was a meeting going on, and it was the time for annual meeting, and I said, I'm sorry, but I will not come. Today, I don't feel like. I feel like staying, be peaceful, and meditate. Can you do it without me? And all my volunteers, they were shocked. We've sent all these messages. We are doing it tomorrow. We can't move the date, and you don't feel like coming to the meeting. And I did not tell them that I don't want because I want to exclude myself. They will really not be happy with that. And so I just can't come today. Can you allow me? I worked. All the mothers were there, and all of the meeting happened. Of course, they missed it. That's the human part. It will always be there. But why to make such a big fuss out of that? He can be there, acknowledge it's wonderful to be there, and give me freedom. So I can continue doing something else. And I think we, if we try and incorporate them, those ideas, it will really work. That's, that's what I can say. Um, are there, do you still have any uh, questions with regards, uh, scientific questions with regards to your spiritual practice? I, mean, I, I love the way you, you have an inquiring mind and you would not um, just accept an explanation. You had to ask, uh, uh, look into the reasons behind it. And I wonder if there are still uh, aspects of that. Uh, you still have questions. Um, yeah, this. At least I have to confess, I still have that little bit going on somewhere. <laughs> but I learned that I don't have to try and be a scientist. I can just be a simple, humble monk. But I had huge doubts in my mind, like mountainous doubts. And uh, I had to go through them. And then I used the science to infiltrate and find out are they beneficial or not. And when I, when I really learned, experienced them, practiced in my life, now, they don't bug me that much as they used to do before. But sometimes to help explain friends and things, I really want to learn all of that. But nowadays, I have become very interested in learning about quantum physics. <laughs> I don't know it fully. But to me, it looks like wonderful, wonderful science that can only stand with the Buddha's idea. Because at the very higher stage, he talks, life is paradox. So I'm still kind of trying to see, but that's not something I'll push to. They're there. If it comes, it comes. But I'm happy to meditate and be peaceful and tell my friends and community that how we can be peaceful, happy. And of course, 
Because Buddha, Buddha, people used to come to Buddha, and they asked this big question, okay, why are we here? Tell us. What is the goal of life? What does God want us to do, and this and that? And he says, you don't know a thing about life, and you're talking about such big things. Those are useless questions. And you just teach how to live happily, and then all your life is yours. And everybody has a very unique life. There is no need to generalize. Everybody has a very unique situation. If this was interested in teaching a way where you can incorporate your life, and you can be productive, efficient, and you can be able to face these situations, and all these situations that come to our life, according to Buddha, they're all gifts for us. They are situations designed in a way where they will help us evolve, to grow, to, to find out what wonderful qualities we have if we are able to face them very well. So I try and do that. I try and not, and, uh, try and not think too much on the scientific. Fix their trouble. <laughs> I have had several years of those, and I know how troublesome it was. Thank you um, for coming. I just wanted to, I'm just interested in knowing if you have further plans um, to further teach in the States. Or have you just started, or have you been teaching, but do you plan on continuing to teach here? Um, I think about this teaching especially, I don't call it a teaching, it's more like sharing experiences. And I must acknowledge I have learned a lot just by this conversation of ours. It, the credit all goes to Dr. Mark Epstein. He's a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. We just met in the documentary while we were making the documentary and his premier. And he actually spread the word around or something. So Sandra, he wrote us email. She said, while you are here, see her from Dr. Mark Epstein, right? So it's because of him, he requested and she wrote. So I said, teaching, well, I don't know how much I can teach, but I could come and share whatever experience is there and at least meet the Sangha. So I don't have any plans. And uh, I'm here till 26th, then I'm visiting for the first time. I'm very happy, my Dharma mother's home in Canada. I'll be there for about two months, I hope. And I think I may come back to us again. And if the, the invitations is something for teaching, and uh, perhaps I could do. Uh, I could actually visit and see, and also it's a process of learning for me. And uh, what I'm very curious, and I think it comes from the same root of that uh, scientific disease of thinking, <laughs> is I want to see how meditation, especially Buddhist philosophy, has been incorporated in the Western life. What I really like, I really admire the Western teachers. And um, it's the beautiful work they have done. They have taken out the Buddhist philosophy. Because in our culture, we have a beautiful story. You know, we have reliquaries where we keep Buddha's relic, pieces of bones, put in a beautiful casket. And over the centuries, you know, what happens? People donate this casket. Somebody makes bigger and bigger and bigger. And we give so much attention to the casket. Sometimes the relics are not there, but the casket is big. It's golden, and there are hundreds of diamonds studded on it. The, the, the relic itself may have gone somewhere else, but the casket is there, it's left. Very often happens with the religion in our places, that faith, culture, all these components of religion are there, but the actual, actual work, that it was actual benefit of religion is gone somewhere. And the Western teachers, what they have done is, 
they're highlighting these aspects, how mindfulness can be used into daily work, here and now, working. I really see that very wonderful side. So it will be a good experience, perhaps, for me to visit around and get to know a little bit. So yeah, that would be nice. Thank you for your time. Um, I was curious uh, to understand your thought process uh, regarding emotion. You talk about you know, some qualities that we need to develop in order to, you know, to develop the, the parameters that you explained. Uh, I was interested, uh, what's your thought when you uh, face anger or face fear, how you counteract it? What's, how you react to it? Um, the first advice could be, until we know our own emotions, until we are in touch with our own mind, deeper mind, it will be very difficult to touch others' emotions. So emotional advice of Buddha, especially, inside, how to develop these qualities, he start developing more of these good emotions expanding emotions, which don't let you constrict your consciousness, but they, they kind of expand, they evolve you, they let you go. So he says, especially training in loving kindness and gratitude. So Buddha says, if you have meditated, he, he doesn't so direct link, you know, he says, if you do this, this will happen, no. He says, do this, and somehow, in a miraculous way, it will transform things, and you'll have it's like gates are open or something, you'll be able to respond to people's emotions. You'll be able to bond with the people's emotions if you go down deep in you. So if you respond, first, of course, any emotion, we don't mean just meditate only on loving kindness, there may be fear or something, I'll keep them aside, no, nothing doing. You even face the fear that you have. Fear that I have to be successful in this life, all of that. And you push the fear, you acknowledge I have this fear, and you learn, not only me, almost all the people walking on the street, the reason by the surprise in New York, the streets are so beautiful. The tree, there's a beautiful breeze going on. And eight people are walking like anything. They're walking so fast. <laughs> and even my mother was telling me, you walk very slow, because I enjoy it. It's so beautiful. I've been to forests where I actually like to look around and beautiful. But then I have to always look at the bottom, because no one knows what is there. We may fall into a ditch or something. It's really terrible. We may step on an animal or something, a spider or something. Here in the city, there is no spider, nothing, it's beautiful. and trees are still there. You can look around, you know, but people don't. So we realize that, like me, I have the fear of life and being successful. All these people walking on the road, they have the same fear. And even, you know, if we acknowledge this much, then the dealing changes. If somebody comes to our office, will not be, we can't allow ourselves to be disrespectful and treat him like anything. We'll acknowledge that he also, poor guy, he also has a fear. He wants to be successful. That's the only reason he is here. And then we'll be able to move beyond what he's trying to say, the words, and be able to feel what is his feeling. Because the problem in this world is, you know, we don't know how to express emotions, how to say what we really want. So whatever he words he's saying, we, should, we will not hold too much onto his words or his speech. We'll move into what he means. And that's a different level of dealing. So to develop these qualities, to be able to face our own emotions, to acknowledge I have fear, I have this and that, not only me, all the people have this. And then go deeper and develop these emotions that expand, they clean, they have a quality, they clean the consciousness. And they're anti antidote of fear and things. Because fear is actually nothing but desire to be happy, desire to feel secured. 
So when we go into this, meditate with love, with the loving energy, then no matter what, I can be happy. No matter what, I have to try and be happy. Because the biggest problem I have heard is, you know, I ask people what they want to do in their life. And sometimes it's very funny being a monk. You can ask this question out of the blue. You don't need to tell them background or anything. Just, they just come and you ask, what do you want to do in life? And they will not feel, what a weird question. They will immediately be ready to answer. So it saves all the time. That we don't have to create a background or something. We just can ask what is meaningful and get to know it. Ask this question, what do you really want to do in life? Many people, they say, oh, I want to meditate, I want to do this. But some good friends who know and this and that people, and I said, don't tell me what I know. Tell me what you really want to. They say, I want to get this job. I want to be a doctor and this and that. And I said, why? I want to be this house. He said, then they will be happy. He says, then I will be happy. I want to get this girlfriend. Then I'll be happy. <laughs> oh, I see. So actually, people want to be happy. So all of us, we live in preparation to live a happy life. But you know, the greatest paradox to me is, it's the other way around. If we are happy, then we can become successful. Because when we are happy and relaxed in better mood, our mental mind is clear. We make clearer decisions. And I don't mean this happy that being on drugs or something and being, uh, the problem is they're not acknowledging and just closing and being happy. That is very pathological happiness. Natural groundedness. When we are balanced, our emotions are intact, then our decisions become clear. Then we'll be able to, really happy people become successful. You know, people who are not afraid, they become successful. Really, if we go down, they had courage to dare something, to take challenges, and they become successful. So it's other way around, and that's why it becomes very important to realize our own emotions. The only way to train this emotional intelligence is to know our own emotions, and then be able to, don't have to talk. You know, it create, really creates a lot of problem. I never talk about emotions when people come to me, especially when ladies, especially our ladies, when they come, I never talk about emotion. They are too, too emotional. I talk about this and that. <laughs> so we don't need to acknowledge and talk about, oh, I understand your emotion of fear. No need to do that. Just understanding, just feeling that itself will, you know, it will generate. Because now we know that we have a multidimensional communication. When a person comes, a very multidimensional link with the people. Because um, one way uh, my mother, my dharma mother always gets a little mad at me, is I don't like to talk to people on the phone. To me, it's like I'm talking in the darkness. I don't want to. I can understand a lot about them by hearing the voice. Because people even, you can see their emotions by the speech. But still, it's very less. And I'm always hungry, you know, too. I want to meet a picture, I want to meet all the person. So whenever we are with the people, it's not only our speech and things are communicating, but also when we are feeling, those feelings are communicating. If we are feeling relaxed and happy and emotionally responsive to them, somehow they will be able to feel relaxed in that environment when they are around us. No need to tell, no need to express. So emotional intelligence, I think, develops that way. It's not, there is no shortcut fix or any tablets or any formula that will tell, but it's a process of evolving. Oh, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about this stupa here. Yes, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> um, in our country, 
in our culture especially, we say the most precious thing to lose in this world is memory. And especially a memory of something good that happened. So we really try and preserve the memory. It's very funny, we don't have culture of reading and, uh, reading and writing and that much. But people still, if you go down, they can remember a few generations. They can remember the name of their great-grandfathers five generations ago. And I was telling that when we have to go and get a cell phone, even cell phone from our government, we have to write down the name of three generations. They need to know that. And also a map of where we live, that's another thing. <laughs> but three generations. And they're already dead, but still they need to know. So that's sort of culture I come from. So what we do is they say one of the beautiful things happening around there was Buddha. Such a wonderful person was born, such a wonderful life he lived. So they want to preserve his memories. So when he passed away, they collected his relics, especially pieces of bones of his body, and they put it in there and built a beautiful structure over top in a way that uh, reflects his teaching and paid honor to it. They're called the stupas, and they're all over India and Nepal. And there is a wonderful, wonderful stupa in our country called Swambunath and the one called Bodhana, they're exactly the same prototype. And they're known to contain the Buddha's relic and the most sacred site for Nepalese. Not in a way that you go and you'll get these blessings and that blessing, nothing doing like that. They say it's the greatest, it, it, when we see that, uh, it reminds us the Buddha was there and it was real. It's not that some fancy story happened that he was born and it's a, it's a good memory of him. So we pay respect. So this stupa is actually the model of that a little bit. I was thinking, when I got the letter from Sandra, I was thinking, it's so wonderful that people actually are trying to incorporate this message of Buddha into their daily lives so far away, such a big city like New York. I thought, what should I bring from my country as a member? So I thought stupa could be the best. And it has these structures. You'll see there is a base. Base is like lotus. It, says, it shows that we actually based on good things. The very first thing is, we take human birth. It's a very beautiful phenomenon. Only when our parents, they get in love or something, such a wonderful feeling is there behind our birth. So that's what it indicates, the lotus is there, we are based on good things. And then the round dome, we call it garba. Garba means abdomen, or the, the abdomen where, or the belly. It actually means the, the, womb, the belly of a pregnant woman. So it actually means, garba means we're all, yeah, the round part, round silvery part. It means that we are all pregnant, <laughs> even men, <laughs> with wonderful qualities that we can give birth. But we can give birth to our own qualities. So that's what it represents. And the top one, that represents the eyes. That means you have to be very insightful, watch, observe. That's the only way to grow this. You start paying attention. And then there are different 13 layers. And this talk about some metaphysics, that your mind will evolve and 13 senses will come and all of that. It's a beautiful uh, representation of that. It was very, very nice to see you. And Oh, <laughs>
Oh, okay. <laughs> now it's coming to me. I was thinking I was pulling a joke on you all. <laughs> and learning about joke. <laughs> because when I met my Dharma mother, she used to crack jokes and I would not get it. And she's like, you don't understand jokes. <laughs> so I'm beginning to, yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.